Hello and welcome to Gamma Project. I'm Dean Statman, your host, and this is episode one. I'll tell you what's up. Gamma Project, episode one, we out here. Okay, welcome, welcome, welcome. My name is Dean Statman, and this is the very first episode of Gamma Project. I'm beside myself with excitement right now, just in case you can't tell. Um, And I don't want to waste any of your time talking about how excited I am. So with that, I will get right into why, and then get started with today's interview. Sound good? Okay. So... What is this podcast? What is it all about? What is Gamma Project? Let's just get this out of the way, and then we can move on. This podcast is dedicated to wide-ranging, exploratory interviews with the world's most creative, successful, and interesting people. Now, there's a twofold goal here. It is, on the one hand, gaining insight into the lives of these extraordinary individuals, but also, and more critically, deconstructing their philosophies, their patterns, their routines, and distilling them into game-changing strategies and tactics that you, the listener, that's right, you, can implement into your own life. Now, why is this project called Gamma Project? Or rather, why is this podcast called Gamma Project? So, to explain that, allow me to get sciency for a second. Really, like, like 30 seconds. Okay. If you've ever encountered the term flow uh, in the context of, say, performing a task with relative ease, or if you've ever heard someone talk about that feeling of being in the zone, whether it's at work or on the sports field, that feeling of being so plugged into the moment that you almost don't have time to think about what you're doing. It's just happening. It's muscle memory. Um, That is what's called a gamma state. And it's because gamma brainwaves, which fire during the gamma state, travel at the fastest documented rate of any other wave in the brain. So essentially, it is a window during which time we are at our most focused and productive. Now, interestingly, research suggests that there are actually quite a few different ways to induce a gamma state, ranging from meditation to laughing to listening to music with a certain BPM. Anyway, end of science lesson, that's the name. So to be clear, this is not a podcast about brainwaves or neuroscience. Um, it is a podcast about performance. It is a personal project that I'm in, that I am embarking on with the goal to identify and analyze the qualities, quirks, conscious decisions that allow high performing individuals, professionals to operate on an elevated plane and achieve extraordinary results. Now, when I say personal project, that's actually exactly what I mean. Simply, I created this podcast for me. And, you know, of course, I'm making it available to everyone, yourself included. But I think of that as more of me sharing these conversations rather than producing them to cater to any particular audience. I am deeply interested in this stuff and invested in my own personal growth, be it professional, personal or whatever else. 
And so every question I ask, I'm asking because I'm genuinely interested. Um, as a result, these interviews turn out to be tremendously rewarding, at least for me. And if I can benefit from them, I can only imagine a few others might as well. So nearing the conclusion of this introductory introduction introductory damn, introductory rant um i want to just quickly address the format of a typical gamma project episode um which you will not be familiar with because there aren't any aside from this one okay due to the nature of the information that i'm after again thoughtful insights from the brightest um also usually the busiest people in the world interviews will occasionally run quite long uh, ranging from 45 minutes to two and a half hours. Now, if that last part piqued your interest, you're exactly the kind of person who will click with this podcast. My job is to uncover the things that matter, the things that surprise you, things that inspire authentically. These aren't things you can learn during an elevator ride. Um, in many cases, the most valuable information we'll uncover is deep beneath the surface, and getting to it takes work. Questions anecdotes, digressions, silence, and that takes time. But at the end of the day, you'll learn things that you won't find anywhere else, uh, even in other interviews, be it in magazine Q&As or videos online, with the exact same people uh, that you'll meet on this podcast. That's the beauty of this format and what attracted me to the idea of creating this podcast in the first place. Podcasters like Tim Ferriss, Chase Jarvis, um, they follow a similar model. I love those shows. They're my inspiration. And my favorite way to enjoy them is to savor them. Listening to 15 minutes here, 30 minutes there, on the way to work, while washing the dishes at home. Sometimes it can take me three days to get through a single episode. But I find that this way I'm able to retain the most information. And sometimes it's just nice to let an idea sink in and take the time to consider how you might be able to apply it to your own life before then continuing on to other concepts in the episode. Anyway, that's how I listen to podcasts, and it's just one way for you to enjoy this one. And if you want to blast through each episode in one sitting, that's cool too. Okay, a quick word on me before I introduce someone far more interesting. Interesting. God damn, it's very cold in New York right now, and my face is probably still warming up. Okay, my name is Dean Staffman. Hello, welcome again. Um, I'm originally from South Africa, where I was born and lived for 15 years. Cape Town and Johannesburg, for those curious. During high school, my family moved to Switzerland, and I lived there for three years before coming to the United States to pursue a degree in journalism at U New York University. Uh, professionally, I've spent my entire career in the fitness, health, and wellness world, specifically media. Um, currently, I work at Men's Health, where I'm the special projects editor, and I work on developing exciting new brand extensions like events, uh, video series, and other things. Um, prior to this, I spent a year in London working on the UK edition of Men's Health, and I've also spent time at NBC Universal as an editorial director uh, at Men's Fitness in a string of positions starting as an editorial intern and ultimately leaving as the magazine's deputy editor. I've had to evolve in tandem with this industry, um, which has been just such an education along the way, ongoing, um, it's never over. I started out writing and editing exclusively for print, and from there I shifted to web and mobile content, and that was followed by video production, and now my focus is 
in experiential events, uh, one of my passions is finding new and effective methods to communicate with people in meaningful ways. So when I look at the arc of my career, it seems only logical that I would eventually get into podcasting. So here we are. And with that, I will now introduce today's guest. Philip Picardi is the chief content officer of Them, an LGBTQ-focused title and the first new brand to be launched by Condé Nast in 14 years. He is also the digital editorial director of Teen Vogue, and obviously a prominent figure in the LGBTQ community. If his name rings a bell, uh, there's a chance you may have seen Forbes' latest 30 under 30. He's well under 30, and this dude will probably be in the next one, and the next one, and the next one. Phil and I met last year uh, while training for the Hood to Coast Team Relay Race, which is a 199-mile race that takes place each year in Portland, Oregon. We were two editors out of a group of 11 that Nike invited to run the race as a team. And over the course of seven weeks of training together and one week spent traveling to and from Portland for the race itself, I got to know Phil and became fascinated by not only his unparalleled success in the most competitive media landscape in the world, unequivocally, New York City, but also his energy, his selflessness, and overall outlook on life. So, a few months later, when I started to consider whom I might want to interview for this podcast, Phil's name was on the list before I even had to think. So, in this wide-ranging conversation that you are about to hear, we talk about the keys to succeeding in a competitive environment. We talk about how to launch a successful brand, strategies for mental health, advice for anyone considering coming out as gay, and tips for, li- blah, tips for a lasting relationship between two people with crazy schedules. Phil's schedule is nuts. Scheduling this interview alone was nuts. And his partner is a doctor, so you can only imagine um, what that takes to make that work, and they do it. So we talk about that and much, much more. So without further ado, here is my conversation with Philip Picardi, and I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Hi, how are you? Very well. Thanks for taking the time. Thank you for having me. What an honor. From Hood to Coast to the podcast studio. Exactly. Oh, man. Hood to Coast. I still have such good memories of that thing. Me too. That has to be one of my highlights of the whole year. We'll, we'll get there. For those who don't know, <laughs> Hood to Coast is a 199-mile, is a not a 200-mile, because that wouldn't be as catchy marketing-wise, I think, <laughs> um, relay race in... Portland, yes. Oregon. Um, and for the record, Dean was the most annoying person to run a race with because he is so fast and so fit. I think Carlotta might have been faster than me, actually. She At, cer- at certain points, she was. Yeah, she was yeah. a sleeper hit, that one. Man. Yeah, I wasn't in the same van as you guys. So it's 12 people divided into two vans of six. Yes. Man, all right, cool. So we'll get to Hood to Coast. Phil, yes. um, tell me, what do you do right now? <laughs> right now, I am the chief content officer and the founding editor of Them, which is Condé Nast's first ever queer publication, and also Condé Nast's first ever independent brand launch in over 14 years. Wow. And I'm also the editorial director for Teen Vogue, and I have been in that role in specific for around three years. Amazing. So first new brand launch in, you said 14 years? Yes, that's right. Or that's what the press said, at least. I'm yeah. going with that. What is... What does it take to, you know, for obviously a massive publisher like Condé Nast, like 14 years is a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, what does it take to, for something to finally sort of crystallize 
Because I'm sure there are ideas all the time for new things. Yes. Um, you know, it takes the power of, I think, an editor who can spot upcoming talent and um, choose to foster that talent and choose to see how ideas can blossom. And I'm really lucky to have a mentor in Anna Wintour, who is inarguably the most powerful woman in publishing. Um, so basically, I you know, was doing my job at Teen Vogue at that point for around the two-year mark. And Anna kind of asked me to have a lunch and just chat with me about how things were going and what I thought about the company in general and how I thought, where I thought things were headed. And then, you know, she posed the kind of ominous question that I think most people, especially like young people who are really just starting off in their careers. I, I'm, I was 26, you know, I just turned 26 at the time. Um, she asked, what do you want from your future? And I just... I, I've never been able to answer that question adequately, right? If you asked me three years ago what I would be doing today, I would never have told you that I would be launching a brand and hosting the launch party of a brand new queer publication. Um, if you asked me five years ago what I thought I would be doing, I would say, I hope that I'll be a beauty director of a major magazine by the time I'm 30, mm -hmm. you know? Um so anyways, I feel like those open-ended questions are always hard to answer for me because my career has taken so many turns, unexpected turns, so far. And uh, the one thing I did know is that ever since I was a kid, I wanted to create something that was for LGBTQ people, but really that uh, was more all-encompassing of the community as a whole. And that was a little bit more intellectual than I think what currently existed out there, but not just intellectual. That was still stylish and avant-garde and um, had room for everything from humor to fiction to poetry to news writing and and kind of run the gamut of, of content. And so I ended up kind of word vomiting this all to Anna in this kind of lunch meeting. and um, And then, you know, I didn't really think much of it. And the next morning, it was around 8 a.m. I usually arrive at the office by like 10, 30, 11. You know, we, we work from home in the mornings. And um, my assistant had texted me kind of frantically a bunch of times. And I, I didn't get a chance to read the texts because my phone was ringing and it was a 212 number. And so I usually don't pick up numbers that I don't know, but I picked up because it was 212. And I picked up the phone and I heard, oh, Phil, it's Anna. <laughs> and so I was like, first of all, how did you get my cell phone number? Um, but second of all, I was freaking out. And and she said, um, I liked the idea that we spoke about yesterday. And I would like you to talk about it more with a business development team at Condé Nast. I'm going to put you in touch with all of the right people. But I spoke to the executives and we all think it's viable, which was a huge kind of a huge kind of step forward. And the initial plan was to launch them or launch this brand, didn't have a name at the time, mm -hmm. in 2018, this year. Um, I ended up pitching the brand two months after that conversation with Anna and pitching a two-year plan um, in a meeting with the entire C-suite of Condé Nast that she kind of made happen. The brand was more or less greenlit um, very quickly after that, if not, you know, more or less in the room. And we launched two months after that. So from inception, from pitch to publish, I like to say it was all in all four months time. Wow. Yes. That's amazing. Yes. I think that just speaks to the, you know, like when, when there's an, a really good idea, it just, it just has momentum, you know, intrinsically. Right. And what was so funny is that you would think, and people always kind of tell me, or say things that like Condé Nast is slow or that like with such a huge corporation, it must be hard to get things done. Um... And that has not really been my experience all mm -hmm. of the time. Um, I think what happened with this brand was 
it was speaking to a real need, first of all, in the world, right? Especially with um, our president uh, and the various decisions his administration is trying to make to continue to marginalize the LGBTQ community. But also it spoke to like the the, pers- the people who work at Condé Nast as like being representative of their interests and their needs too. And so um, it was kind of amazing to see all corners of a massive corporation come together to make it happen. Wow. Now, I want to, we're going to come back to them. I want to zoom out a little bit first. Yeah. Um, take me back to sort of the beginning of your career in media. Okay. Uh, <laughs> so where did, you, where did you go to school? I went to NYU. I went to Gallatin. I went to NYU. You did? Yeah. What was... Where... Uh, I was CAS. CAS, yeah. okay. Double major, journalism and history. Nice. Okay, so I went to Gallatin, which is the School of Individualized Study, mm-hmm. which means we, we had, you know people majoring in things like evil or the color blue. That's My what, major... That's what you make up your own major, right? Yes. I had a friend who majored in keeping, as in keeping, but with an apostrophe, it real. <laughs> um, okay. Needless to say, he's not 100% happy with how his degree looks these <laughs> days. <laughs> um, but he was a part-time stand-up comedian, so I guess that helps that, hey, that works. fuel the fire. Um, but anyway, continue. So you no, went to my major was beauty, the philosophy of beauty. I basically ended up going in with the intention of studying the history of fashion um, and, of course, media studies. So I ended up in a lot of kind of women's uh, studies classes, feminist theory, of course. Um, I took a lot of uh, philosophy classes about aesthetics and how we determine something to be beautiful, which oh, was really interesting. Anyways, I ended up, I before I even came to NYU, I was interning for a local newspaper at um, in my hometown of Andover, Massachusetts, and uh, I knew basically that internships were going to be the only way for me to break in yep. just from working in a newsroom environment in high school. Mm-hmm. So I had an internship before I even stepped foot on, you know, NYU campus, and that internship mm. was for Racked.com which now is this big fashion website. But back then it was a sample sale blog. It was literally just like charting where sales were happening right. and yeah, helping readers shop. Um, and then I saw a posting for a teenvogue.com internship. This was the time when like magazine websites were essentially just regurgitations of what was inside of the magazine. Yep. Um, and I applied for that internship. I got that internship and that was how I started at Teen Vogue. I ended up being at Teen Vogue for a year and a half as an intern. Okay. I moved to the beauty department after that, um, under Eva Chen, who's now the director of fashion partnerships for Instagram. Mm-hmm. And um, from there, I moved to a six-month internship with GQ um, under Michael Haney, who was mm-hmm. a deputy editor at the time, and then finally to Vogue.com. I graduated NYU a year early so that I could get a kind of jump start in, in working. Um, and Eva, my former boss, placed me or helped to place me um at a startup called Lifestyle Mirror, which is now defunct, and it was a mess at the time. (laughs) And uh, it was there that I kind of got access to going backstage and interviewing the makeup artists and the hairstylists at Fashion Week. And that's where I met um, the beauty director of Teen Vogue at the time, who was Elaine Welteroth. She hired me um, (laughs) to be her assistant editor at Teen Vogue. Uh, Six months into being her assistant editor, I was promoted to digital beauty editor. Three months after that, I uh, was poached by Refinery29, and I left to be their senior beauty editor. So I think I'm all of 23 years old at this time. And you're already hitting the goal that was planned for 30. Yeah, yeah, more or less. Seven years ahead of schedule. Yes. Um, And when I quit Teen Vogue, I remember the editor-in-chief, Amy Astley, saying to me, you know, at this point, Amy had known me now since I was 18 years old. So she had known me for five years. Mm. Um, and even though I was an intern, she still knew who we were. We were always, Teen Vogue was always a very small team. And so Amy said, um, this will always be home and I'll give you six months over there. Go have fun. Wow. And I'll call you. 
And six months later, she really called me. <laughs> you know, HR called me and was like, there's an opening at Teen Vogue and we would like to discuss with you. It's confidential. And it was to be the digital editorial director. Wow. And so at 23 years old, I became the digital editorial director of Teen Vogue, which was the company's youngest ever editorial director. And your title before before that one was? Um, at Teen Vogue, it was digital beauty editor. Yeah. And okay. at Refinery, it was senior beauty editor. Okay. So yeah, there's like a logical kind of step up and up and up. Over yeah, there. yeah. But still a jump. Wow. Um, a leap. Yes. <laughs> I know what that's like. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's it's funny, man. I mean, this this industry, it's and honestly, almost any industry, it's it's relationships are so important. Like if there's one thing I just learn more and more with each year, it's that obviously, you know, talent of course, work ethic of course, mm-hmm. but just don't be a dick to people. <laughs> you know, be no, good be right. good to work with. Right. And um, there's luckily so much like talent out there. growing up at Teen Vogue, the mentality was never Um, the stereotypical fashion magazine, which Mm -hmm. a lot of people who I was coming up with, like who were working at other magazines at the time, grew up with that mentality, Mm -hmm. like reigning, you know? And so you would see like the assistants with like the thousand Starbucks cups and like the frantic looks on all of their faces to like get a fashion sample to that place. And all of that is, is maybe that's good and fine, but that wasn't the environment I was brought up in. And that's certainly not the environment that I ever wanted to foster. Um, and so I think being friendly to people and being cooperative and collaborative um, has helped uh, a lot of the Teen Vogue team as we kind of adapt to to an ever-changing industry mm-hmm. and also an ever-changing corporation. Kind of as corporate culture has has changed drastically over the past two years. So how old are you now? Because I know you were just in Forbes 30 Under 30. Yes, I was. I'm 26. Okay. Yeah. So, okay. So we're similar age range. Uh, I'm 29. Mm-hmm. Um, but we know a lot of the same people, mm-hmm. and like dozens. And... Um, once or twice it's actually this happened about twice now um you've come up in conversation with someone a friend and different people and both times they reference like yeah we were kind of like coming up together and then he just took off mm. like you just accelerated like what That's would very nice what would you say is no and it's true i mean you you just told the story what would you say is like one of one of if not the sort of most um what's been the most valuable tool like in your toolkit in terms of just propelling yourself forward in this industry you know, it's so funny. I So there are a couple of things that I've learned over my career. I was 14 years old when my dad dropped me off at a McDonald's um, one summer over vacation, and I thought he was joking. And I literally laughed in the backseat of the car, and he said, no, get out of the car. You have work. And I was like, what? He had forged my signature on all of this paperwork, gone to like the <laughs> like whatever the child labor things you had to do to like sign up someone under 16 to work in Massachusetts. And got me a job because he was worried that I was too entitled because I was going to a private school at the time. And he was like, you're going to learn the value of a dollar. You know, you want to wear nice clothes and be involved in fashion. Go learn how to work. And so he dropped me off at McDonald's and that was where I worked. And it was a really good education. I still think it was one of the most formative things that I ever did because it always told me that I'm not. It's taught me ever since that I'm not above doing certain things. Also, it's taught me that every element and every kind of rung of the ladder needs to be involved in order to make a machine run efficiently. Mm-hmm. And certainly no one can really do that better than a fast food enterprise. Wait, so take me through this, like the, like the play-by-play. So, <laughs> like, hey, Phil, get in the car. We're going to... We're all going to get lunch. We're going on a field. Like, my he brought my brother along just to entertain my little brother. Yeah. 
Um, and you had no, you mom, had no idea what I was had coming. No idea. He had never mentioned it. No. Okay. Mm-mm. So you, he had always threatened it, and yeah. I always thought it was a joke. So and, he, so and then you, it wasn't. you guys roll up at McDonald's, and he tells me to get out of the car, and I got out of the car, and I walked in. And then when you walked in, did like was the manager expecting you? Was... The manager was a family friend, and so he was. Uh-huh. You know, he, they, everyone was in on the joke except for me. <laughs> oh my god! How long did you work there? I only worked there for a summer. My dad okay. was pretty like. The thing was, I wanted to quit ever since I had started. Even though it wasn't bad, like I enjoyed it and it was something to do over the summer. And I bought a computer with my money, which was very helpful. I bought my first Mac. (laughs) Um, I I told my dad, this is not what I should be doing. It's too far from home. It's too far from school. I can't maintain this job year round. And he said, work is not something that you should enjoy. You don't do work to enjoy it. Mm -hmm. You do work so you can enjoy your life. And I said, I don't think that that's true. And he said, if you're so smart, you go find your own job. So I got a job at a hair salon and I loved that job and it was great for me. And I ended up making money and enjoying myself. And so that was our, I mean, my dad is so baby boomer and that mentality Mm -hmm. is so typical of his Mm -hmm. generation. So he's never understood this. Like we always had this kind of conflict over like, can you love your job and like, you know, find it fulfilling as a, as a means of life as well as, you know, Mm -hmm. as a, as a career thing. Um, and so I only say all of that to say what I learned from working at a salon, what I learned from working at McDonald's, what I also learned from working in retail and college is that you can impact a culture and an environment just by being present. Mm-hmm. And so by almost by keeping your head down and assuming that other things are going to get done or that other people are going to get things done or wishing that something would change without ever vocalizing or are willing to kind of take on that change and having agency mm-hmm. to lead an initiative Um, you're not going to get anywhere. So it's so funny. I often hear entry-level employees say, my job has just changed so much from what my job description was when I initially applied for this position Mm -hmm. with human resources. My job has changed so... I have no frame of... I don't even know what my initial job description said. You always have to go way above and beyond whatever your day-to-day responsibilities are. And if employers can see that you're not just willing to make a change for yourself, like Mm -hmm. you're not willing to just advance your own career, but really elevate the brand or elevate the corporate kind of culture that you work in, if they can see that that's your priority, then obviously they're going to accelerate your career. A lot of people make the conscious choice to say... I would like to stay in my lane mm-hmm. or I would like to only do what's on my plate for today to like maintain my mental health and make sure I get my work done. Mm-hmm. All of that's fine. But if you want to accelerate fast, you need to bite off more than you can chew and you need to take on responsibility for things that aren't, aren't necessarily in your lane. If that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think really it's just in a nutshell, it's having more of a, an eye on the prize, you know, the bottom line, the, the image of, or the, um, you know, the quality of what you're producing as a company and how you're sort of being seen versus just like what you as a person are doing. Like, right. Yeah. I mean, and that's thing that, something that takes a while for a lot of people to learn. Just, I think the, the difference between being busy and getting stuff done, mm-hmm. you know, because it's, it's easy to be like, you know, to feel unappreciated. It's like, well, I come in early and I leave late. And it's like, that doesn't really mean anything. Mm-hmm. What did you do? Right. Yeah. Except um, manage your time poorly, probably. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, I've, man, morning routines are something that fascinate me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've, I continue to try and sort of tweak mine to, you know, what sets me up for more like energy in the day or whatever. I'm curious about what, what your mornings look like because you, you tend to have, tend to seem like you have a lot of energy. <laughs> I am definitely a morning person. Okay. In the sense that that's where my brain is operating the best. So I prefer not to be in the office in the morning, actually. 
because I like to be alone at home and a lot of times I will get emails that ha- require a response from me that I don't initially have like a knee-jerk reaction to. Mm-hmm. And if I don't have a knee-jerk reaction to something, I don't respond right away mm-hmm. and I let it sit. And usually if I let something sit for a night and like I wake up in the morning and I open that email, I have the answer. Like that answer has come to me overnight somehow. Mm-hmm. Um, so I spend a lot of my mornings funneling through the more difficult tasks that I just, my my brain and my heart did not have the effort to get through the night before. Yeah. And then that's also the time that I, I unfortunately skim Twitter. We check what our president has said overnight or in, or in the wee hours of the morning. Um, and I check all, all of my main news sources and I try to read at least, you know, 10 articles in the morning before I get out um, of the house in the day. I always try and listen to the daily, uh, mm-hmm. the New York Times podcast in the morning. And then I usually listen to TED Talks on my way into work. Oh, nice. um, but other than that, it's a pretty, it's a pretty, you know, sometimes I fit in a run and, and whatever, but that's a pretty simple routine. Um, just quick sidebar. I'm curious, what is your sort of style of listening to podcasts? Do you, are you like sit down, listen to this whole thing, or do you sort of break them up like a little bit on the commute to work, a bit home? Yeah, that depends. I do, um, I listen to everything on 1.5, like the speed. Okay. Um, oh, really? Yeah, so that it, I can get more listening in, oh, really. Man. Yeah, so usually I can finish the daily but just with like my shower and my skincare routine and then yeah. listen to a TED Talk on the way to work. Okay. Yeah, I tend to not, like if, if I interrupt my listening session, I tend to not come back to it. I just okay. move on, yeah. Um, and so you're listening to, do you listen to everything at 1.5 speed? Yes, doesn't that make you anxious? It, I think my heart rate just went up like hearing you say that. No, it makes me feel more accomplished. I'm like, great, I can get Rachel Maddow's whole show in yeah. so fast. It's wonderful. Man, when I was in, um, yeah, so NYU where we both went. Um, so I was in a fraternity and I remember one wow, year this why? guy. NYU so, fraternity? That's pe- why people go to NYU to avoid that I know. shit. So, well, I didn't know what a fraternity was when I moved to the US. I had a roommate who's one of my, best, not... one of my best friends who lives in San Francisco now. And he was like, you know, so we, we did our freshman year abroad in Florence. And then so when we came to NYU for to New York for our oh, okay. sophomore year, it kind of felt like a freshman year because yep. it was my first time living in New York. But he was set on this idea. He was like, I got this flyer, we've got to rush this fraternity, like, they've got this event, and it's, like, wings, and, like, this and that, and, like, hanging out, and football, and, like, I mean, even football was new to me, like, I didn't... Are you talking about soccer or football? Exactly, football, American okay, okay, football. American football. Um, okay. Oh, no, I knew soccer, I mean, South Africa, it's huge. Right, right. Um, and so... But you call that football in we, South Africa? No, we call it soccer, actually. Oh, really? Yeah, it's it's weird, we call it soccer, but... Okay, the um, world of sports is so confusing. <laughs> and, um, so I was just like, sure, I mean... I'll go. Like, I got nothing to do tonight or whatever the night was. Um, and we did it. And then there was, like, another Rush event, another one. And I thought the guys were pretty cool. And I, like, kind of liked what they stood for. But anyway, fast forward. Um, kind of crust, was a brother already. And we, you know, the Rush comes around. And there was this guy. And I won't, I won't say his name. <laughs> but I'm sure anyone who knows him will instantly recognize based off this description. First of all, this guy was, like, like a mountain of a man for a college freshman. It was like, you know, some people are just like genetically, it's like, what the hell? Uh-huh. Like, what did your parents feed you? Um, but he would start every day by watching 300, the movie 300, on like three, I can't remember if it was like three times speed or like 5x speed before starting his day to get like jacked up. And I remember just being like, dude, you're that's a lot of hype for one morning. Like, yeah, he would he watch the whole like of 300. <laughs> Needless to say, he did not get a bid. Um, <laughs> there were other things. 
may have involved a door breaking down. I can't really remember oh who's to say. But anyway, yeah, fraternities. Oh. Uh, that's that's your lane, man. <laughs> no, you, not for me. Um, did you ever join any sort of like organizations or, or things like that that you like maybe helped your career or socially? Uh, you know, at, at in college, my big focus was my career. I really didn't spend a lot of time on campus. I basically mm-hmm. went to class and went home or went to work. I worked retail and then I had an internship. Sometimes I... At times, I was juggling two internships and a job, so I, I was really, really busy throughout college with extracurriculars, and I really wanted to finish early so that I could kind of get a jump start on my career. Yeah. Um. And so, so anyways, no, I didn't participate in a lot of kind of extracurriculars there. I was pretty much like kept my mm-hmm. my focus pretty narrow. Um. Uh, you mentioned I'm jumping back again. Uh. That you listen, you read to like you know ten articles or so in the morning. Mm-hmm. You check all your news sources. Uh. What are some of your favorite news sources? Like, what are you reading? So I am fascinated by The Intercept. I think that it is one of the coolest uh, news organizations in the whole world. Mm-hmm. I love reading it. I obviously read The Washington Post and The New York Times every day, um, at least a couple of pieces from those, and I'm signed up to all their email alerts. Uh, and BuzzFeed News, I also love. Chris Geiner is one of my favorite journalists mm-hmm. um, who's on the Justice Beat, and, and, and he's really great. Um, and then other than that, I'm, I'm checking you know Vogue for the fashion stuff and Vanity Fair uh, for, for kind of like filling in some of the, some of the gaps. Mm-hmm. And I also really love the outline um, which is kind of a new newer obsession but their emails are hilarious and really amazing I love their subject lines like a, it's like a newsletter it's a it's a website their newsletter is a very elevated experience okay. I have to say it's like a beautiful format and the way that the words and the pictures all align I, I'm, I'm just fascinated by it I think it's great oh, I've got to check it out how often yeah. does it come out um I think the outline sends daily yeah, I don't quote me on that, but I think it's daily. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, so now I want to jump back to them. Um, yeah. And we'll, again, there's like no rhyme or reason to the structure. <laughs> it's like we can go all over the place. Sure. Um, it's like a Tarantino movie. Um, when you're coming up with an idea for something like them, you know, yep. obviously it's not just like this would be cool kind of thing. Like there's, it's socially it's very important. And especially right now, it's very important to have, to have uh, something like that. And with someone like you running it, frankly. Um, when you're pitching an idea like that or communicating it to someone like whether it's Anna or like the entire, you know, Condé C-suite, obviously you're talking about, you know, we need this right now. But when you're, as you're saying that, I want to know, like, what are you thinking like personally? Because I'm sure that it brings up like personal, you know, experiences and things that you've had to go through to Mm -hmm. really make you believe like we need this, like we need Mm -hmm. a voice for this community. Um, And obviously there are voices for the LGBTQ community, but like, like you said, there's a very sort of specific angle for them. Mm-hmm. Um, any personal experiences that you can share that, you know, when you look back, that sort of fuel your your drive to make this a success and, and, and really help the community? You know, when I, when Teen Vogue kind of initially entered center stage after uh, Lauren Duca's article went viral, mm-hmm. um, someone asked me, why Teen Vogue? Like, why did you do, why did you choose to do this work at Teen Vogue? What, what made, what makes you passionate about Teen Vogue? And that's because, as I mentioned, I had kind of gone back and forth from intern to assistant to editor to editorial director at Teen Vogue. And it's because, you know, in no small part, I, I really feel like it's important to be doing work for young people that's actually, that's actually adequately representative of how intelligent and how well-informed young people are. Mm-hmm. And I think that a lot of what exists for young people out there or what's written about young people is inherently reductive. And that's really a shame Mm -hmm. considering this generation of people is our most diverse and largest generation of people to exist. 
um, by the year 2020. They've also grown up with the internet at their fingertips, which means that their access to information is unparalleled. Mm -hmm. And we still don't really know the full effects of of what that means psychologically. But at the very least, from what I can see, I'm not sure if I could get into NYU if I applied today. And, you know, I, and that's what I always say when I meet with advertisers. Could you get into the school you wanted to go to if you were applying against the current candidate pool, right? Kids are smarter than ever, and they deserve to be treated as much. So, so that was certainly one factor. We wanted Teen Vogue to be more representative of the generation that we were talking to. But Vogue means something really important in the world as well. And a lot of people think that that just means fashion. When I was a kid, when I had just come out of the closet, I was 14 years old. And now 14 is the median age of coming out for adolescents. So oh, really? pretty pretty common hat, at least in America. And so I was 14 years old, though, and this was 12 years ago. And that, that was not common, right? So I was the right. only openly gay person in any classroom I went into. None of my faculty at my school was openly gay. Mm-hmm. I was about to enter a Catholic high school, right, which... Certainly, they did not have the vocabulary or the resources to help or assist me in any way, shape, or form. Mm -hmm. Um, And my family, more importantly, was Catholic and Italian. And so even though I wouldn't, like, necessarily say that, you know, they were homophobic or anything like that, certainly I grew up with the word fag being used by my brothers and my father in my Mm -hmm. household and attitudes towards feminine men that were really oppressive. And I grew up very feminine myself, right? Like I didn't smile for three years of elementary school because I wanted to be like Victoria Beckham and Posh Spice, <laughs> who never smiled. So I was super gay and I came out of the closet and my parents tried to push me back into the closet. They asked me not to tell anyone. Um, they sent me to a Catholic therapist. My dad started mm-hmm. taking me to church every weekend. Uh, asking me when I was going to start dating girls again or if I'd really made up my mind about this whole gay thing and, like, you know, all sorts of stuff like that. In retrospect, like, my parents, maybe they did the best they could. You know, I I love my parents and we have a great relationship now. That was a really unfortunate time in my life Mm -hmm. and it was a dark spot for our relationship. So I found myself in Borders buying, like, our summer reading list or whatever and I was feeling really alone. And so what I wanted to do was find books or anything movies that I could like read watch listen to that I would like see gay people in or see Mm -hmm. gay stories in because I had no frame of reference for what a gay life would be like and you can imagine the kinds of things that were available to me which were stories of AIDS and death and tragic romances and and all of that stuff nothing that was really helpful Mm -hmm. so I made my way to the magazine aisle and I ended up finding out magazine which was cool right like this is a this was a space that I could go to I ended up picking up details, which I thought was a gay magazine, but was not. And but really, but really, I don't know what they were, who they were getting. And then I picked up Vogue, and I don't know why I picked up Vogue because I I thought I needed to know about fashion because I was a homo. Like I thought like that was part of like our prerequisite because I had watched Will and Grace. Like I thought in order to be palatable and be accepted by people, I need to be fashionable and I need to fit the queer eye for the straight guy kind of mentality. Mm-hmm. So I pick up Vogue. And Vogue ended up being the most relevant thing I read on the newsstand, or I I picked up at the bookstore that entire day. I ended up connecting with Vogue for some weird reason. There was something really visceral in me that was telling me, like, this is incredible. Like, lost in, like, frothy Balenciaga dresses and, like, these handbags that were amazing and price tags I couldn't even believe with all these supermodels. I was floored at everything I was seeing. And it felt so escapist and so fabulous, and it was so exciting. I was so excited. And so I picked up Vogue, and I started reading Vogue almost monthly. Whenever I could get to the store to get it, I would get it. And there was one month, you know, I was in high school, 
and I was reading Vogue and I kind of stumbled upon the editor's letter. And this was before I knew who Anna Wintour really was. And in her editor's letter, she was talking about marriage equality and why the fashion community needs to stand behind marriage equality. And I remember feeling so alone for so much of my adolescence and feeling like I had nowhere to turn where I could find myself or feel validated. And I felt validated in in that page, on that page by that woman who had Mm -hmm. taken time out of her day when she herself wasn't even queer. She just wanted to take a stand for what she knew was right. And I thought, this is the power of publishing and Mm -hmm. this is the power of media and visibility and so that kind of spirit and and that um that memory and that kind of tactile relationship i had with the pages of vogue is what inspired me to pursue a career at Condé Nast in large part and i think it all came full circle to like have our launch party of them um with like a bunch of queer folks around and like having an absolute blast and people voguing and and this kind of like very spectacular celebration and having Anna show up to to kind of celebrate it with us, it felt very full circle. Wow, and that's that's awesome. I mean, it's just powerful. And like you, I think before we actually turned the recorder on, you, you we were talking briefly, and you said uh, them is really more um, sort of social media focused, even mm-hmm. though there is a web presence. Um, yes, is that would you say because you are trying to reach you know the the young generations, and social is just like ingrained now? Um, is it you know you're not your focus isn't on putting a book on a shelf in Borders where you would have found it back then. And now it's like putting it on the phones of people who, who need it wherever. Yeah, whenever. exactly. You know, the, the more and more we think about people's entry points to websites, it's more or less coming from a social media source like mm-hmm. a Twitter, like a Facebook or an Instagram or a newsletter. Mm-hmm. And so I think about those places more as the entry points of our brand and the website, therefore, as kind of the conduit rather than people, this antiquated idea that people like, bookmark a website and visit it every day, which I right. think is less and less a practice. Yeah, I mean, even for like this podcast, I mean, there is a site, but that's not the focus. Like that's, it's like a home base, right? Like exactly. you want some notes, you want some extra photos, whatever, go there. But right. yeah, it's um, po- actually podcast marketing is tricky because it's such a gated community. Like mm-hmm. generally you don't really learn about new podcasts unless you hear like a guest in one that you're already listening to and they right. plug their own. So that's actually what most, most hosts do. Yeah, totally. Um, that makes sense. Man. Um, okay. So you mentioned, so you came out at 14. Mm-hmm. That, I mean, that struck me as, as, as young, but mm-hmm. now you've, you said like that's the median age, which yes. I'm actually, I'm so surprised by is, um, one thing I, I'd like to use this podcast as a vehicle for is, I mean, one of the main intentions is to sort of you know, obviously we talk to, you know, super high performing individuals like you and we kind of deconstruct and break down, you know, routines and, and strategies and tactics to give listeners those tools to, you know, help their own lives as well. And but it's beyond pr- productivity and things like that. Mm-hmm. And I think when when we're talking about something like, you know, coming out something that I'd love to do is for those people who are maybe listening, who have want to come out but haven't. Mm-hmm. Tell me about what it felt like when you actually did. Like, was it was it freeing? Was it the opposite? Mm-hmm. Um, really, this you could use this as a chance to talk to anyone who to speak to anyone who is thinking about like they know they need to come out but they haven't. Mm-hmm. Um, what would you say to someone like that in two thousand and eighteen? There are a lot of elements and layers to coming out. And by the way, this could be someone who's fourteen. This could be someone who's thirty. Right. Fifty. Right. Of course. I think you have to come out on your terms and the choice to come out is also still a choice. So a lot of people still choose to remain in the closet because of their safety 
And because the people around them might abandon them, they might lose their jobs. Those are all realities that um, that were not factors for me when I came out of the closet at 14. Mm-hmm. So in a sense, my story of being able to come out of the closet at 14 is a story of privilege because I knew my parents would eventually come around or that I wouldn't be homeless, that I wouldn't be beaten, that I wouldn't be killed, Mm -hmm. you know, at least by my immediate loved ones, that I would still be protected, still have a home, still have financial support, still be sent to college. And so all of those things are factors that people should consider um, if they're thinking of coming out of the closet as, as a young person who's still dependent on a family. One of the things I wish I did first was talk to friends rather than... My parents were the first people I told. Mm -hmm. And I shouldn't have done that because they made me feel really badly about myself after I came out um, and ashamed of myself. And I wish that I had someone I could have called after that moment um, who could have, like, said, I'm coming to get you. This is ridiculous. Like, we're going to fight them. Mm -hmm. You know, we're going to make them realize. I didn't have anyone in my corner except for myself, which made me feel even more lonely. And you can build a support network and still stay closeted, right? Like you can mm-hmm. visit your local LGBT center if, you know, that is is not going to be too conspicuous in wherever you're living. Um, and certainly you can find people online without revealing your identity. You can start, you know, I've seen lots of anonymous Twitter accounts from, from queer adolescents and trans adolescents who just want to ask questions. Mm-hmm. That's another, you know thing that you that you certainly could pursue just please exercise caution with who you're talking to and what information you reveal all of those things you know are are important to to consider coming out is is an immensely important um impersonal choice and more and more i speak to young people who say that coming out is a sort of performance that queer people were forced to do because straight people built the closet. Mm -hmm. And so we have to come out because we somehow need to disclose the fact that we're gay Mm -hmm. or we need to disclose that we're trans in order for people, for straight people or cis people to better understand um, our community. And so also I don't know what the future of coming out is as a performance or if it's going to be that important. Um, But I think all of those things are really important to consider and certainly, if you have questions about coming out or if you need resources, I recommend visiting GLAAD. Um, or if you ever need support mental health-wise, um, the Trevor Project is an amazing organization and they have a hotline that you can call where you can talk mm. to uh, people who are kind of more qualified than I am um, and to, to help through any of your personal um, or kind of individual or unique experiences. Trevor Project, what is that? The Trevor Project is a hotline that's dedicated to LGBTQ youth, oh. um, specifically uh, the people who are available on their hotline um, are well-versed in kind of mental health mm-hmm. um, and, and things of that nature. And so you can call them for a chat. You can call them if you're feeling like you're maybe in crisis. Um, so it's a great organization. Nice. Now, uh, it sounds, you know, you've obviously, you have to go through a lot um, <laughs> from whether it's coming out, whether it's working at McDonald's. <laughs> you <laughs> had some interesting things growing up. Um, I'm curious, what would you say is or was the darkest period and what did you do to get out of it? What did you learn? The darkest period was that kind of in-between time where my parents were pushing me into the closet. After you had told them? After I had told them. And they asked me to wait until I was 18. So they were asking me to wait for four years. Um, And they were sending me to the Catholic therapist and making me go to church. My mom wasn't speaking to me for a period of time, which was really hard. Um, And so what I did was (laughs) I used the internet, actually. Do, I, do you remember MySpace? Do you have a MySpace? Oh, yeah, of course. So I basically changed... I went into Microsoft Paint, and I found a bunch of images from Abercrombie catalogs that I either scanned myself or found on online. Mm-hmm. 
and I brought them all into a Microsoft Paint file, and I made a composite of a bunch of naked men, and I made that my MySpace background, and I made my username, I'm here, I'm queer, get used to it. And um, my mom got a couple of phone calls, so I made the choice to publicly come out myself okay. rather than um, rather than having my parents control my narrative. And that was immensely freeing and liberating, but it made them pissed. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, I mean, well played. How did you, what would you say is something you, you learned from that experience that you maybe carried forward to, you know, whether it's your career or personal life? I mean, that whole experience and being able to live my truer self online mm-hmm. and be more authentic online as, as a personality really showed me and taught me a lot about how kids behave online today. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not really that dissimilar. Um, and so I think people use social media and a lot of kids are using social media as a chance to explore elements or facets of their identity that they mm-hmm. don't feel safe doing in real life um, because of societal expectations, because of being bullied or ostracized or because of what their parents would think. Um, and so that's informed a lot of the, the things that we've done at Teen Vogue that have been really interesting. Okay. Man, MySpace, you just took me back right there. <laughs> I wonder if, if our MySpace pages are still there. Don't, don't look it up. I don't want to know. I, <laughs> I, those, wow. I don't even want to know. I mean, that was, wow, that was the rage, man, for a while. And then Facebook just, I remember, like, kind of swooping in. I remember when someone invited me to Facebook for the first time, I was like, Facebook? It was so boring. You can make your own background. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, the whole thing was, I really loved MySpace. Although MySpace, yeah, it felt like it just got overrun by, like, it just got weird. It got, it almost started to feel, like, Craigslist-y. You know what I mean? Yes, totally. And sometimes I even feel... Like Facebook might start like Facebook like when they start doing all the like the zombies versus pirates like stupid games and stuff. Right. I was kind of like, oh man, like here we go, like MySpaceville. Um, they've <laughs> they've managed to kind of innovate and keep it interesting with live yeah. and all that. But uh, totally. Wow. So you're obviously right, sort of on the um, the bleeding edge of digital. Um, I'm curious about what you are sort of seeing in terms of um, trends, or it could even be just some one interesting thing you're seeing, um, like consumer behavior. Mm -hmm. Um, so, you know, we already know that like people look at the majority of our content, like on their phones. Um, and that's why, you know, a lot of content has shifted to like shorter form, more bite-sized kind of stuff. Um, but aside from that, any sort of interesting things you sort of picked up and I, I'm guessing this would probably be more on the, on the Teen Vogue side, but yeah, just, I think right now what I see or what I'm viewing and, and certainly this is just a hypothesis and I'm hoping it's true is that we were living in I feel like for the past few years, we were living in this kind of age of a lot of older media institutions playing catch up with the newer media institutions. And what I see now when I go on like a viral alert service like CrowdTangle, or if Mm -hmm. you can actually just like look at your Twitter timeline of media brands, what you'll see now if you if you do an experiment like that is that pretty much everyone is covering the same story. Mm -hmm. We're covering it with like a minutely different headlines. Mm-hmm. So even our social promotion strategies are very similar. Everyone's Twitters are just bots that basically churn out links mm-hmm. with very little to no interaction um, on on like with your community. And we're all publishing so many stories a day that a homepage is is not just irrelevant, it's actually chaotic. Yeah. And so what I think is going to happen if it hasn't already happened and we've certainly seen elements of this happening um, in our brands is that we're entering an era of quality over quantity. Mm-hmm. And so I think part of the reckoning that we're going to experience is scaling way back on 
uncovering everything or who covers what Mm -hmm. and more original reporting, more original stories, more elevated visual storytelling um, in a way that helps kind of re-differentiate our brands that have all become so homogenous. Now, I'm of course speaking more specifically to a women's media space. So this is a pretty limited, you know, experience. But no, we see that as well at at Men's Health. I mean, you've got to keep, you got to keep up with what's happening. And like, if something is trending, you've got to be there with your brand's take. Like, so we would view things through like a fitness lens or a wellness right. lens or, or a lifestyle lens. Um, and, you know, you guys would use the the Teen Vogue lens. Um, totally. But it's that sort of, that rush to capitalize on that peak. And so I'm curious, I first of all, I wishful thinking, I hope your hypothesis is true because that's also what I think is happening. I think it's happening slowly. Mm-hmm, I agree. But one of the biggest challenges is you still need those those page views and those uniques. Mm-hmm. You know, now if you're not publishing as much content, I guess what you're doing essentially is you're hoping the quality of the content is so high that it's getting shared more anyway and right. it could maybe go viral on its own uh, merits. But, but I question but you're the business see that model dip. of chasing unique visitors or page views, right? Because, well... Well, really it's for advertising, right? Exactly. that, And that's why it's called a business model, yeah. right? Like we, we have to fulfill certain... KPIs or certain numbers in order to fulfill advertiser impressions. So mm-hmm. people looking, theoretically looking at ads. More and more, there's more and more overwhelming data to show that a lot of people on the internet are using ad blockers. Mm-hmm. That number increases the younger your user gets. Yeah. So younger people pretty much know what an ad blocker is and are using ad blockers. Um, and also, they can also completely tune out or skim over ads when they're looking at them mm-hmm. in kind of an in-stream experience. For our advertisers and our partners at them and Teen Vogue, what we always talk about and what are thankfully what a lot of our brand partners are are expecting from us is ideas for more custom content or native content that fits more organically into an editorial experience mm-hmm. or can live alone as its editorial experience. A lot of advertisers come to us and say, we love what you're doing. How can we elevate your messaging? How can we amplify your messaging? Mm. And how can we be integrated in a way that's not gross or exploitative? You know, to have those kinds of conversations now with advertisers shows how far our industry has come just in the past couple of years. Um, and I think this kind of idea is helping all of us kind of move away from that rat race of unique visitors and mm-hmm. rat race of production numbers and how much we have to kick out every day and is helping us focus a little bit more on less for more impact. Um, and that doesn't mean we're going to do away with, you know, the news cycle and covering the news or covering sure. trending topics. It just means, I think, for our newsroom and for, for Teen Vogue, what I've certainly been trying to coach everyone on is like, why are we covering this? Who is going to cover it authoritatively? And what is our take, right? And like answering those questions before we jump in a story is generally a really good exercise. Taking mm-hmm. a beat so that, yeah, sure, we're not gonna we're not gonna beat CNN to a Trump piece. We're not gonna beat Us Weekly to a piece about Meghan Markle's engagement. Right. But certainly, you know, our response to Meghan Markle's engagement was we did a listicle on the sexist history of marriage and how marriage is a traditionally sexist institution. And that was funny and informative and interesting and counter what everyone else was writing about. Mm-hmm. And it also helps a lot of young women reevaluate this desire or like society's expectation that a woman's marriage should be her peak. And right. that's what she should aspire to. And so that was a Teen Vogue take. And so that felt a little bit more organic. And so we're looking for, for more of that this year. Yeah, I think really the key is is resisting that um, that urge to jump on a story that's lighting up and rather say like, do you know what? If we put this out in a week, but we interview three people and we actually have a stunts on this issue, 
that's how you maintain your authority. We did There's see a similar phenomenon happen on with the Kevin Spacey piece where oh. an editor-in-chief at the company emailed me and said, why hasn't them published something on Kevin Spacey yet? And um, I copied my executive editor, Meredith Toulousen, who's an amazing journalist um, and much smarter than I am. Mm-hmm. And, and she said, because we can't verify these claims yet. Um, because we need to make sure we understand what our point of view is on uncovering something like this and, yeah. and that we have the right writer. She ended up getting Alexander Chi to write a really beautiful piece that to date is our most successful, oh. um, most trafficked piece on the internet. And it happened five days after the news broke about Spacey. And so we saw no real punishment for waiting to, yeah. to say something. And also with a young brand, you know, you're there's even you gotta be even more careful because it's not like this is one story out of like mm-hmm. 37 that are going out that day and like you know it disappears in a sea of like your homepage or whatever I mean you're you're literally molding the brand right now for how it's gonna be in the future totally. and every every story every headline um, every little like dig at someone you know that's actually sculpting like who them is as right brand. I um, think that jumping on the news piece is another element though of of fueling this kind of rep- what seems like a GOP agenda of discrediting the media. Mm-hmm. We have jumped on stories at Teen Vogue that once they re- reached the copy and research desk, which like I'm so grateful that Condé doubled down on copy and research mm-hmm. in this in this whole era. Um, the research team would say the original source for this article um, or for this news item is actually the Daily Caller once you trace it back mm-hmm. through the various channels and you realize that uh, an immensely kind of right wing website was pushing out a news item and we're covering it wow. as fact wow. you know and so before we press publish we have people who are checking for those things and thank god because we've seen plenty of news organizations unfortunately fall into that trap mm-hmm. I'm sure that we ourselves have fallen into that trap before and we've had to either double back we've had to issue corrections or whatever and I think um there's validity in not adding fuel to that fake news fire, of course. Um, and internet culture makes it hard to not jump on things, to your point, yeah. and to not want to cover things fast and urgently. Um, but it's more important that we're like on top of our game right now, more than ever. Right, and just being creative as well with the way you cover things. I mean, right. One of my favorite things I saw recently, actually I saw this yesterday, um, was, actually that makes that doesn't make sense to say yesterday because <laughs> it's not going to be yesterday when this comes out. <laughs> but... Um, so there was a, uh, we talked about this for a second before recording, there was a, a joke, um, a, a, like a fake rumor, but a very obviously fake rumor that uh, Trump had commissioned a TV channel to be created just for him, um, where it's basically just a loop of like baboons like fighting and stuff like that. And I, my friend was telling me about this. And uh, what Vice did, because he works with Vice, is they, instead of just covering it, because um, it's stupid, anyway, it's not real, obviously, um, they actually said, they went and they created that channel. Right. So they created like a Facebook Live with a loop of like monkeys. Right. Like, just in case, like, here it is. You can watch it. And, you know, that's not like, there's no sort of reporting necessarily. It's not like really even journalistic. But it's something that like, it was their way of jumping on something that was viral and doing it in a way that was sort Mm -hmm. of uniquely vice, right? Right. Um, So you don't have to be a week late to the party as long as you can just think of what is your sort of your brand's take on this thing and like how are you going to use it to you know bolster your right your brand yeah um man okay so let's see i got a couple of questions here I've, i'm very, like dying to ask you so what is the worst advice you routinely hear in your field oh that's a good one 
like it could be something you hear editors telling maybe like younger staffers, assistants. Um, I mean, I've certainly heard a lot of a lot of awful advice in, the, hmm. in our field. That's a really great question. Um, the worst advice that I've ever heard or bad advice for people in the industry. We can come back to it. How about the best? The best? The best is definitely bite off more than you can chew. Yeah. Um, the, I, I mean, I think that that's the, the nature of an editor's job has expanded and changed so much that uh, mm-hmm. being able, not being afraid to kind of go to a sales meeting, not being afraid to participate in branded content programs, mm-hmm. not being afraid um, to hop on a video and host a video show or host one video, not being afraid to try a podcast. I think experimentation is very important. Um, and so making time to experiment and making time for extra projects um, is always, you know, a good thing. And if it feels like it's um, maybe inhibiting your personal life, like you, you don't have as much personal time, um, I would always encourage you to look at what a short term versus a long term investment is mm-hmm. on taking on that project. Because sometimes it feels like you're giving up your Saturday afternoon for a certain window of time, but ultimately your goal with this could potentially be a long-term, you know, career benefit or something to add to your resume Mm -hmm. that um, becomes an ingrained part of your next job or your next move. So you mentioned looking at things in terms of investments. Mm -hmm. What would you say has been your, one of your best investments to date? Now it could be an investment with money, but it could also be investment with time. It could be your energy. I don't have a lot of money to invest in things other than um, what I wear. So uh, these Gucci boots were a good investment, contrary to what my boyfriend thinks. But I think that... <laughs> oh, wait. I may, have, I may have seen this on Instagram stories. Yes, he's was, really upset Was this where that. he got to the mail before you did? Yes. And, found, uh, and yeah. then opened the receipt, but Gucci doesn't put the price on the receipts, which is great. Um, <laughs> they really were looking out for me. Um, my best investment is, is, is everything that happened at Teen Vogue. Mm-hmm. I, I started there with a team of five people. We now have a team of 25 people. Nice. I started there by editing, um, by recruiting new writers myself, by top editing any piece that was not about fashion or beauty myself. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I hired every single person myself rather and, than... And by the way, was that because you knew everyone else wanted to write the fashion and beauty, so you took the pieces that people weren't necessarily jumping on? I wanted to control the way that we were covering topics that weren't endemic to the brand. Okay. So I was in charge of introducing them to Mm -hmm. the brand, essentially. Um, I hired everyone myself, which meant that I was recruiting people on social media and looking for new people rather than like waiting for people to apply Mm -hmm. to an open job. And I was often coercing people to come to work at Teen Vogue because at that time, you know, someone who worked at the Wall Street Journal or who worked at Gawker was like, what do you mean Teen Vogue? And I had to convince people, I had to beg people and promise them that it would be a good experience, you know? Um, And so more or less those people certainly don't regret those decisions to come to Teen Vogue, which is great. Um, and so I spent the better part of my first two years working at Teen Vogue, working 12 to 14 hour days, um, not attending events, not attending fashion week, um, really just kind of buckling down like me, myself and I in my office with a bunch of copy, a bunch of papers, a bunch of writers, you know, really building everything from completely mm-hmm. the ground up. Um, and for so long, it felt like the most frustrating experience because we were growing so fast and it felt like... It was still so small scale at that time. Like we went from two to six million people in like under six months. Wow. And even so, it still felt like it wasn't making the splash we wanted it to make. So it was like, okay, what are we going to do next? And every day was about reinvention and reinvigoration. And every time we came into the office, it was like, how are we going to destroy the news cycle today? Like what Mm -hmm. is our take today? 
Um, and that kind of spirit was exhausting. I watched yeah. myself burn out. I watched my staff burn out. Um, I learned a lot about being a better manager and managing mental health. Um, however, I would not have traded those moments or those years for the world. It was the it was the single handedly the best thing that I did for my career certainly. Um, and I also think it it helped put a lot of other people's careers on the on the map in a really interesting way. Mm-hmm. Um, so you mentioned that it helped you sort of manage people, uh, become a better manager. Yes. What what would you say is like um, one thing you learned from that that made you a better manager? One one of the hardest things about digital media that's completely different from print media is burnout happens so much faster and so much more frequently. Mm-hmm. A lot of times when we talk about burnout, we talk about it as though it happens once right. and then, you know, we correct it. And that's yeah. not what happens. Nope. I have burned out myself probably six times in the past three years where I felt I literally felt like there were days and weeks I could not get out of bed. There mm-hmm. were sometimes days where I could only answer emails from my bed like at home and I just could not get to the office. Wow. I couldn't even stand to walk. Um, and that was really hard. And because of my commitment to work and because of my ability and my willingness to stay late and come in early and do a million meetings, go on a million trips, get back, do get everything on my to-do list done, what I realized was I wasn't just setting a high expectation for myself that was impossible. I was also showing everyone who worked for me that this was the expectation that they should hold themselves to. Mm-hmm. And that killed me because mm-hmm. I think seeing the people who I cared for, who I was, who I thought that, you know, I was trying to insulate from a lot of what I set for myself, mm-hmm. I ended up like sucking them into that vortex. And if I could take that back, I certainly would. Um, it was, it, you know, working in that environment and working as hard as we all did was rewarding but it came at a at a, at a human cost mm-hmm. and this is not and so many managers don't talk about this because they're afraid to i think and especially so many new media outlets like more people should be talking about this mm-hmm. um it's really important that we reckon with the burnout that comes with digital media and that our corporations and the people who are backing us and supporting us um, help build in guidelines and kind of check-ins that are making sure that burnout is caught before it officially happens. Yeah. Um, and I don't think we have that, to be transparent, we don't have that infrastructure right now. It's something that's an ongoing conversation that we're all working on and that my some of my employees are actively involved in, like kind of meditation spaces mm-hmm. or can we nap or do we have to work for, can we work from home? Can we leave early certain days? Like all of those kinds of structures that we're working on. Um but it is really complicated and it is real. Yeah. I mean, I've always been of the mind that if you get your work done, I don't care if you work at your desk, at home, in your bed. If you just do what you need to do, I, I don't care. You right. can be on a cruise. Um, but, you know, when, you, when you're talking about massive organizations like the ones that we work for, yep. it's, you know, it's hard to implement that at scale. Right. Um, and you can be one yeah. manager of five people and that can be your microculture, but that doesn't extend... To the rest of your company. So right. if you want to work from home one day, but you have a meeting with people who are above you, Tough. you're coming into work. Yeah. You know what I mean? So um, it's like we can create our own microcultures, but ultimately we need a more corporate reckoning um, across the whole publishing industry mm-hmm. about what digital media looks like and what the human cost is. So you mentioned uh, mental health is a big part of that, obviously, and that you throughout these like you know various burnouts and, and that period of just like absolute career acceleration. Um, you learned how to take care of your mental health uh, a little more. What, what are some things that you implement to stay you know, sane, I guess, uh, 
Working from home is a huge one. Okay. That way, if my partner, you know, he's in medicine and so he has kind of a different schedule than me, Mm -hmm. if I can spend a day with him, even if I'm on my laptop and he can just be around and we can have a meal together Mm -hmm. or we can like maybe watch a half hour show together and I can take a break in my day, Mm -hmm. um, my mental health improves and my productivity improves. And um, I feel better about myself at the end of that work day. That's a huge one. How much are you typically able to work from home? I can really work from home, I would say maybe once every couple of weeks, I can take a full day. Okay. Um, but otherwise, I can certainly come in late and come in for a half day. Mm-hmm. It, all de- it all depends on what my meeting schedules and my travel schedule sure. looks like. Um, so, so certainly work from, work from home helps. Um, and then I also, for a really long time, I was actually doing all of the weekend editing personally. So I was editing oh, wow. around 25 stories a weekend, oh, um, pretty much all on my phone. Um, and that was happening for around two years. So uh, we we created a shared system where that was actually divided up between the deputy editors rather than myself. That yeah. was nice to have to be able to reclaim the weekend. When uh, when was that happening? Like how long ago was that? That was literally up until last year. Yeah. Okay. So in your so current mid last year. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, more and more. Like you would expect someone who is a director or something. You you automatically think like, yeah, they're not like you know in the weeds. But like these days, it's crazy. I think so many people who aren't probably most people who aren't in media. They just imagine these like giant teams, you know, and no <laughs> teams are so nope. small. It's hilarious. Yes. Like I'll sometimes tell friends like how many people work for like a certain magazine, um, right? Because you know, everyone knows everyone, um, and they're like, "Get the hell out of here!" That's not true. It's, it's like it's like it no, it's, true. No, it's like three people. Like, <laughs> it's true, and yeah. it is. I mean, if you're not in the weeds, you don't uh, you don't have the benefit of actually feeling like you're a part of the team. Mm-hmm. And so it's important for me to be involved in the day-to-day. Yeah. You know, it's funny. What's been such a motivator for me recently is I recently started doing more events for men's health. So getting us into, like, the experiment, experiential yep. uh, sort of um, realm. And what I have just found to be such a motivator, because I think a lot of people in media don't get this, is being able to see, like, I'll set up the sign-up page. And then I'll actually, like, I'll put out posts on social, put up stories on the site, like content marketing. And I'll actually see that number of like tickets sold and the Mm -hmm. dollar amount going up. And it's such a motivator um, to see like instant gratification for your work. I think for a lot of writers, pretty much everyone who starts out, it's just that byline, right? Like you want to see your name in print, like it makes you feel super good. It's like official, authentic. Um, But once you start sort of going going up and, you know, bottom lines start to become a little more, Mm -hmm. um, you become a little more personally responsible, um, having that 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 dollar amount to look at has just been incredibly motivating. I think when you can find something like that, it to re-engage you with your job. Um, not that I was disengaged, but it's like you were saying, our job descriptions change. Like, like they're yeah. so fluid. Um, I mean, I don't think I have events in my job description, but here we are. <laughs> yeah, totally. Yeah, a lot of our instinct is to like move on when we start feeling unfulfilled. Yeah. Rather than actually digging in and saying, how can I make this better? Like mm-hmm. here, and what what can I do with my experience here to make things better? Because you can move to a different position in a different company. Sometimes it's better the devil you know, right? Because you already know everyone and how the operation works. And so if you ask for this added responsibility and ask for an incremental raise mm-hmm. to do that responsibility, even if you ask for an experiential period to say, I'll do this for six months. If mm-hmm. it gets a return, can I get a raise? You know, you can actually better impact culture and completely change the nature of your job. Yeah. I've always said like, instead of asking for a raise or asking for a promotion, like this is what I want to do. This is the job I think I can do. Just do the job. Mm-hmm. Just do it. Don't even have the raise conversation yet. Like take on extra responsibilities, um, you know, within reason without like, like stomping on everyone's feet. 
um, and then have the conversation because now it's framed as this is the job I've been doing for the past six months on top of my job. That's a much stronger position to ask for a raise and a change in the title. Right, right. Than, than like, take my word, I'll be great at it. Yeah, Rather yeah. like, look, I was great at it. <laughs> right. And it's it's often better for you to learn in a friendly environment where you have kind of some, like, you know, with them, it was great for me because I was able to continue my the work that I was doing at the time at Allure. Mm-hmm. And so I was kind of keeping that, you know, a part of my purview. And I was kind of independently learning how to build a business plan, like how to launch something, like launch marketing and event strategy and all of that stuff was really like technically a side job. Mm -hmm. Um, But it was nice to be able to learn in like a kind of environment where I knew the faces and I knew the players. Mm -hmm. And so I felt like I was in a safe space when I was doing that. So in in spite of that, you know, safe place, still New York media, crazy place. Yes. (laughs) Absolutely yes. nuts. Every day is different. There are mm-hmm. fires to put out like multiple times per hour. Now, you mentioned um, you have your partner. Do you guys live together? Or do yes. You okay, you do. Um, that you're able to, you know, work from home every now and then. Um, how do you, you know, working in such a stressful job with such a high sort of cadence and so much pressure? Because another thing we haven't really talked about is a Teen Vogue. It's not just a resource. I mean, really, there's a responsibility there. Like mm-hmm. you are, you know, informing a, a young generation and in to a certain extent, really shaping, um, at least in one regard. What? How do you guys make that relationship work? I mean, he's a doctor, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, so his hours are all over the place. Yes. Um, you're crazy busy. Yep. What are some things you guys do to, uh, you know, sh- shout out the noise every now and then, or or just like, it's you. Each of you, if you dated like a person who didn't have a crazy job, that would already be a stressful relationship. Right. You've got two like crazy alphas. How do you guys kind of chill out? Um, that's a good question. Um, to be honest, it's something that came, I think, more to the fore of our relationship this year, especially kind of, you know, considering the aftermath of the, the buzz around Teen Vogue and the, the nature of my job changing and then launching a new brand. I also Mm -hmm. took on Allure at the beginning of this, uh, at the beginning of last year. Um, so I had essentially three jobs for a period of time. Um, it was really hard and like I, I won't lie to you I, I think it's important to say like there were times when we talked about breaking up mm-hmm. and moving out and moving on um, and we didn't we decided to stick with it and I'm really obviously I'm really happy about that of course now <laughs> um, but there were times and it was really difficult and we had to have really hard conversations about level of expectation mm-hmm. of like is this always going to be our pace is this always going to be work first you know so communication yeah, but, you know, I've been with him since the beginning of his residency and since he graduated from business school. So I have seen him through very hard times and in really long hours, to your point. Um, and and I think that he's seen me through the same. Our off periods don't overlap. So his vacation upcoming is right in the middle of fashion month for me. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and so those things really suck. Um, and so we have to be more cognizant of, of how we make time for each other. The other thing that we we've done is we've really invested in actually making our apartment more of a safe space. So mm-hmm. we've like taken a lot of care to to make the decisions and it sounds silly, but make the decisions to like furnish it appropriately and make it feel like a home. Yeah, what and are make some it feel spe- cozy. What are some specific things you guys have done? So we we basically shopped for the entire apartment together. This maybe doesn't sound that unusual. I don't know how straight couples work, but this was <laughs> this was really interesting for us because 
like there were certain things that we learned about each other throughout the process like he needed a couch that he could lay down on and like that he needed this like big space for and for the living space to like so that we could entertain and have people over and not feel self-conscious about the apartment Mm -hmm. and i think just by being able to like have a home that we made together it makes us feel better about staying in and choosing to stay in and Mm -hmm. like spend that time on on the couch or or just like kind of lounging around rather than having to like go out and and be immediately social um and we've learned a lot more about how each other interact socially so just be because i am a big personality people often assume that i'm an extrovert Mm -hmm. i i actually prefer to be alone and prefer to be like internalizing things and and by myself i'm a very solitary (laughs) person so i think that was a learning curve for Mm -hmm. for us to kind of figure that out and and so now i think having that expectation that i don't go out on the weekends or i'm not going out every night of every weekend Mm -hmm. you know has been has been good we've just had to get to know each other better i wouldn't say that there is anything like any policies that we've instituted or anything to make it um to make it more efficient that's very much that's very much kind of the 2.0 of a relationship that i think we're entering yeah i think the communication is really just the most important thing in 1.0 and every version (laughs) thereafter yes right totally as long as you're on the same page right um so i'm gonna take it all the way back to the beginning now um so when we first met we were training for hood to coast yes that race that we talked about at the beginning of this and you sort of obviously never met you before and we all started um, kind of running together and training and everything um and you know you didn't start from zero you jumped in and you were already in pretty good shape what do you do on on the regular to to stay fit i know you train with our our mutual friend, friend. joe <laughs> joe hates me i hate joe the man I love the myth. Joe. it wouldn't this podcast wouldn't be complete without without you talking about joe you're right it wouldn't joe uh, joe was a huge motivator for me when i first got to joe i was in that burnout period that i was telling you about it and we're, we're talking about joe holder the uh yes. nike trainer and also s10 trainer and yes just jet setter extraordinaire health expert follow him on ocho system ocho system on instagram the man the myth the, <laughs> yes <laughs> Um, when I first met Joe, I was 20 pounds heavier than I am now. Really? I had gained 20 pounds in a year and a half of working at Teen Vogue. I was like staying late at the office and I was eating Cheetos and drinking Coke. That was like dinner. Wow. Um, it was really bad. <laughs> um, and he came, he offered to come in and meet with me. And, um, and like literally it was one day I remember, I remember it so clearly because I bought this shirt the year before from Kenzo. So it was like a bigger purchase for me. And I was really, I loved this shirt so much. And I put on the shirt and the buttons were like screaming. Like yeah. they were like trying to pop because my, it was so tight. The shirt was so uh-huh. tight because I had gained a lot of weight. Um, and so Joe basically in three months helped me to lose, you know, 15 pounds. Wow. And after that, you know, we've, we've been shedding a little bit more and initially I had this like big fantasy of becoming shredded and like becoming one of those Instagram gays that everyone sees. I've kind of let go of that fantasy, to be <laughs> honest with you, um, because it's just not practical for me in my life at the moment. But Joe actually taught me to better be more conscious of taking care of my body mm-hmm. and taking care of myself and that the decisions that I make about my diet are not uh, just impulses that like I, I think that they are, but mm-hmm. that um, it directly correlates to how I feel, how I sleep, how I wake up um, and how I how I behave to people in the day. Um, 
and so that's been uh, it's been a really inspiring experience. So I, I work out with him once a week, more or less, just so he can check in on me and my overall health and mm-hmm. hold me accountable to how often I'm working out and what I'm eating. I've been meat free for 30 days now, really? which is great. Yes, congrats. Thank you. Um, I'm actually doing the same the same thing. Good are you, for you. Yeah. So are you just um, is that just vegetarian or are you trying to cut pescatarian, out? pescatarian for now? Okay. Gotcha. But the whole, the idea is to move to vegetarian. Okay. But it's hard. One thing I'll tell you is that, yeah, it is totally hard in the beginning. Um, once you start to find things that work and once they get sort of absorbed into your routine, it becomes so much easier. Right. Yeah. Like I, I started just... just eating like oatmeal for breakfast and I don't even oh, I think now. Like it just happens. Like I yeah. wake up and like it's muscle memory. Like I go, I put it on, I eat it, done. I should do that. That makes sense. That sounds <laughs> nice. I, Yeah. I mean, uh, the the food and the diet thing has, has changed a lot for me, and that's because of Joe, which is great. Other than that, I running is good for me, especially in the morning, because mm-hmm. it helps me to clear my head. It also, like, I have found that I have, like, a lot of lingering because of the nature of my work and because my work is so personal. Mm-hmm. Um, if I'm in meetings or something, I, can, I when I'm running and when I'm on the treadmill, if I'm listening to music, like, I feel like I'm getting, like, flashbacks from the day or days before of, yeah. like, confrontations I had or conversations that I had that were difficult or like things that made like left a bad taste in my mouth and the treadmill is often a place for me to just like let them all go Mm. um and so running has been very therapeutic in that sense and I feel if I don't run in the morning and I go to work I'm way less efficient and I don't know if there's a science behind that oh of course really because I think it I I totally notice a difference yeah so um what I'm curious about so you mentioned one of them right here like running before work puts you in this great space yes um you know, like I said, this isn't like a neurology podcast, but as Gamma Project, it's I'm, I'm very interested in, you know, what gets people in that sort of optimal zone to just be like as productive as shit. Mm-hmm. Like that's when things get done. Um, what for you are some fa- when are you like I know just listening to my body like around between 11 and noon. Like, I just want to work out. Like, all I want to do is go to a gym and just like mm-hmm. move weight. Like my body t- like tells me like it's time to go do that. So I know. If I want to stay on track with fitness, like that's when I need to make time for my workout. So I have to eat, you know, well before then, after then, all that. Um, in terms of productivity, like work, um, what are some things that get you like into the zone to just get shit done? Like, is there a certain time of day when you like to work? Is there something you maybe do beforehand? Like some people, like myself, will listen to like one song like on loop for like three hours sometimes because it just, it kind of keeps you in that, that space. Um, do you have any tactics Whoa. like that that keep you... Uh, productive or when you really need to work um yes so the morning is a time for me to like really get shit done Mm -hmm. and that happens pretty naturally so if i get i get that i get a big hot coffee with steamed milk i get i answer my emails i go through what my reading list and then i hop on the treadmill usually and so that's that's like one element of like the hammer things out that's more of a to-do list strategy is your treadmill at home uh i do have a treadmill in my building that i I run on yeah um and then the other time of day that I'm most efficient is the like kind of late afternoon. So after 3 p.m., um, I'll generally get like a, a big tea mm-hmm. and I will close my office door or I will go back to my apartment or whatever. Um, and I generally put away the screen. Mm. So one of the things that I that's really counterintuitive is that brainstorming or thinking out or like processing things happens for me way better when I take a pen to paper mm-hmm. and um, outlining things and stuff on paper also helps me get things mm-hmm. done really, really fast. So sometimes I will spend an hour making a bulleted list of things to do and then separating those tasks by time mm-hmm. or separating those tasks by like the nature of, are they personal? Are they professional? Are they just on my mind? You know, just like writing everything down on paper is really helpful. After that, 
I will tackle the big things that I know I need to get done. Mm -hmm. And the big things, I cannot like start a task. Like right now I'm going through a big edit test exercise for everyone at Teen Vogue Mm -hmm. where every department and every person, every department has to fill out, like basically take a test. That's like, this is what we're going to do this year. This is what I want to do. This is everything I think is wrong with our culture. This is what I think is right about our culture. Like a whole thing. Not an edit test like... This is the keep your job edit test. No, not like that. Um, But everyone is going to go through this kind of same exercise. And it's been daunting because I've been thinking about it for a long time. And I'm like, how do I capture all of that in one document? Mm -hmm. And so instead of typing, instead of like going on Evernote or like whatever those to-do list apps are, whatever that bullshit is, I just write it all down and Mm -hmm. and I've tried to outline it. And so that's the most... I think the paper brainstorm for me has been the most effective um, thing to help me kind of move through my list. Yeah, um, that's funny. We're actually very alike in that regard. I have a massive, I mean, I think I'm pretty sure it's like what architects use. <laughs> it's not yeah. a, but oh, a normal great. notepad, but on my desk. And I actually, when I started working uh, at Men's Health, I had a big sort of external monitor, got rid of that thing immediately. And I just use a small like 13 inch MacBook um, because I don't like the idea that all my work is at a computer. So like I'm the, I'm the same as you. I'll print something out and read it on paper. Right. Um, and to-do lists yeah, are very I, often visual. Yes, totally. And I pin things on my wall too. Mm-hmm. So if I'm doing a big task, I will often create packets of, of like printouts or whatever and I'll just put them up on a wall. I, and just to like be able to visually reference things really quickly mm-hmm. if I'm like trying to get something done is, is so helpful. Um, one thing that I've found to be such a game changer is... There's an author, uh, Pedram Shoje, and he's got a book called The Art of Stopping Time. And oh. it's interesting. You, you might want to check it out. It's sort of like a, what's the word? It's almost like a devotional where every day you kind of do something. Um, you pick a goal and you'll see. But one of the tips that he gave me in person when we were chatting was make your to-do list a to-do list for that day. And yeah. I was totally guilty of not doing this and I had no idea I was even doing it. Like my idea of a to-do list is I think of every single, literally every single task that I know of that I need to do. So it could be long-term, short-term, whatever, and I put it all in the to-do list, a little empty box next to each one so I can check it. Although I've moved to Post-its now, which is actually more okay. satisfying to crunch a Post-it and throw it in the trash when yes. the task is done. A little less eco-friendly. Um, but yeah. yeah, but what happens is you... <laughs> hey, I put it in my recycling bin. Just That's good, good. Um, keep the planet spinning. But he said... No, what, what I found I was doing was I would, let's say, make a to-do list of like 12 items and then... I would do maybe, and again, this wasn't just for the day, this was in general, and I would do maybe, let's say, five of those items in a day. But then I'd go home and I'd have the other items on my mind and because it would feel like I didn't get through my to-do list, even though that to-do list wasn't intended to be just for that day. And so what Pedram says is make your to-do list a to-do list for the day. So maybe have that master list, but then also have a second list, which is what you're looking at. So maybe you only put like four or five or six items on that one. Because then when you check off that final item or like crunch that last post-it, you feel done for the day. And yeah. you can go home and you've got that mental peace. Like today is complete, you know, work-wise. As opposed to like, oh, well, now I'm already thinking about that one thing I haven't done yet. Tomorrow, da 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 It's like, think about that tomorrow. You know, do today, today. And just personally, that's been such a, um, product- that's a productivity great, game changer. That is a great tip. Another thing that I do is I try to identify on my to-do list what's going to take me less than five minutes to do. And so often, sometimes the things that sit on your to-do list are things like, oh, you just have to make that email intro where you have to send that thank you note. Uh And so I highlight or I will like star the things that are less than five or two minutes um, and just knock those out if I know I have 15 minutes or if I know I need to feel productive, like at the end of like a really frustrating day. 
totally. Well, each task essentially is like an endorf- endorphin hit when you get it yes, done, right? Yes, totally. So if you can sort of like get a couple under your belt to like gain some speed or momentum to yes. into that bigger one, because um, so often it's just starting something. And- totally. And as a manager, the the hardest thing, and it's so funny because I'm, I'm now working with an, uh, my Meredith, who I mentioned before, is our executive editor for them. And it's so funny um, because she stepped into like managing a team and, and this is her first time kind of having this many direct reports in an editorial capacity. And uh, when I was a, uh, just starting out as a manager, I remember always being like, I'll take this or I'll do this rather than even the exercise of giving someone else the task and then revising the task mm-hmm. with them is a much more fruitful experience. Like you have to learn as a manager how to delegate and how to delegate responsibly because mm-hmm. delegating doesn't mean giving something to someone else to carry through necessarily. Mm-hmm. Delegating often means giving someone the chance to learn how you work and to learn from you and what you want. Mm-hmm. Um, so delegating can sometimes mean taking a little bit more time to get something done, but um, it's often more rewarding in the long run. Again, another investment thing about time. If you could have a push notification show up on everyone's phone in the world at the same time, mm-hmm. you could make it say whatever you want. It would be on everyone's computer screen, TV, could be there for like a minute. What would you have that message say? Hmm. Um... I think so. I it could be anonymous. Yes. Um, I just recently um, lost my cousin to a really pretty gruesome battle with uh, stage four metastatic breast cancer. Mm. She was a really incredible woman who I had a lovely relationship with. And she found out she w- she had cancer when she was pregnant mm-hmm. um, with her daughter. And uh, after she delivered her daughter um, and it was going through chemo while she was pregnant, she ran the Boston Marathon. Wow. And she ran the Boston Marathon to prove that she could beat cancer, that she could overcome the odds. Mm -hmm. And so even though her battle with cancer um, was not the victory that that she wanted, I think what our family has reckoned with, which I consider a victory in her honor, is um, being more open and honest with one another and not letting things fester Mm -hmm. um, in order to be polite to one another. And so I think what I learned from that experience, and before she passed, I was able to send her a letter just thanking her for being in my life. And that was like a really simple exercise that gave me a moment of reflection. It took me maybe a half hour Mm -hmm. to write, I love you, and here's why I love you. Um, But when she passed... I didn't feel like there was anything I didn't say to her Mm -hmm. that I would have wanted to say while she was alive. And I felt like I had closure from that experience. And I hope, you know, that in a way she felt like that was a a suitable experience for us to share together as she kind of um, passed on. And it opened up the gate for us to have a conversation about what she wants for her kids' lives when they grow older without her Mm -hmm. um, because they're both very young Um, and it taught me a lot more about her kind of in her last couple of months of, of living. And so if I could have one push notification, it would be to write a letter to someone telling them all the reasons you love them. Oh, I love that. It's a very important exercise to do. Yeah. Is there, um, and again, just sort of speaking to people who can relate, uh, who are listening, anything that you found has sort of helped you, um, you know, getting over the loss of a loved one, um, any way that you've been able to you know deal with it um yeah because it's something that people struggle everyone struggles with of course 
death, I think, always feels so final, which mm-hmm. is so bizarre. To me, you know, in, in reading more about death, I think that there are two books that I, that I, I should say, there are three books that I love about um, dealing with the death of a loved one. The first is The Year of Magical Thinking by Joan Didion, where she talks about the loss of both her daughter and her husband in a back-to-back kind of unfortunate um, series of events, and how she reconciled with believing in um, in kind of manifestation and, and magic in order for her to kind of cope um, with, with, with those deaths. There was also Plan B by Sheryl Sandberg, mm-hmm. um, which actually was her own exploration of the loss of her husband, the tragic loss of her husband, um, and then talking to other people about their own stories of loss and mourning, um, which was a fascinating exercise to like read and, and have her go through. And then there's Mom and Me and Mom by Maya Angelou. Um, and that's a, a story of a reconciliation before someone passed away, but about basically being able to like kind of find love and the importance of prioritizing love um, as a way to um, to honor someone's life and understanding that honoring someone's life can often be tricky and mm-hmm. and can come with a lot of kind of pain and and sorrow and grief, um, but also reward. So those three books I think helped give me a lot of perspective about people when when they pass. I don't look at death as final. I do look at death as inevitable, and I'm very comfortable with the idea of death in a lot of ways, um, just because it's inevitable. And once mm-hmm. you accept its inevitability, I think it allows you to to be more present in people's lives um, and to not necessarily want to fight it, I think, mm-hmm. is an important thing. Um, but with my grandmother, which was another uh, kind of pivotal moment for me and, and with my cousin, what I think comforts me is is knowing that I can take steps in my life to honor their legacy mm-hmm. so that they they lived for a purpose that I can kind of carry on and trying to focus on that and, you know, looking at their pictures and reminding myself of, of what they lived for mm-hmm. um, is really important. Wow. You mentioned three books over there. Um, is there is there a book that you like frequently give to people? Like, is there a book that you gift like pretty often? I've given Mom and Me and Mom to a lot of people, or I've recommended it to a lot of people. Yeah. That one is, um, that book, like Maya Angelou, first of all, everything that she's ever written is incredible. Um, but that book, like, that like tore my heart into it. it was so beautiful. Yeah. yeah so I, I love that book. Um, before we wrap, because obviously you're trying to be respectful of your time over here, I could talk to you for, forever. Um, any big goals for 2018? Professional, personal? My personal goal is to make and carve out more time for myself and be more intentional about that time. Uh, and obviously, I think you can understand why after this very long conversation. And then um, my professional my professional goals, I'm kind of nervous to share them publicly. I, my, my professional <laughs> We're about goal, to make them real. Yeah, exactly. Anna's listening. <laughs> oh, God. My professional goal um, is to create more in real life uh, executions and um, examples of the work that we do as journalists. And so I'm still fleshing out exactly what that means. Mm-hmm. Luckily, I have some of the best people in the entire industry um, working alongside of me. Um, but I really want to take this kind of digital growth and exercise that we've done with Teen Vogue and, and the digital launch of them. And I really want to make it analog and imagine what that more tactile experience looks like at a, at a more regular cadence for mm-hmm. our readers um, and what it means to be more of an ally for them in their real lives. Awesome. Yeah. Well, Looking forward to seeing everything that you have coming up. Thank you. Thank you for thank you for having me. Of course. And all right, we could wrap it there. Hey guys, Dean here again. 
Thank you so much for listening, and I really hope you enjoyed that because there is a lot more to come. Keep an eye out for the next episode. I will be releasing a new one every other week, and be sure to check out gammaprojectpodcast.com for episode notes, blog posts, and other cool stuff. Catch you next time.